Hello, welcome to Biobased Radio, a podcast promoting a more sustainable future through conversations with industry, university, and environmentalists. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Bio-Based Radio, a project of the Consortium for Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Education, funded by the National Institute of Food and Agriculture at the United States Department of Agriculture. Today's podcast is unique in that it's an outreach educational project from Alicia Taniguchi, a student, a delegate from the North Dakota State University, and she's going to be helped today by uh, a couple of guests. Uh, one guest that I want to go ahead and, and pull in is uh, Dr. David Ripplinger, who's on the faculty and is the uh, bioenergy and bioeconomy, bio products extension specialist uh, there at North Dakota State University. But first, let's get to know Alicia. Um, so, Alicia, you're an undergraduate student. There at North Dakota, what you're studying? Yeah, I'm studying quantitative economics and math. And um, you've been active in the cable program now for over a year. Uh, tell us a little bit from your perspective about some of the things that you've done uh, with uh, being a part of the cable program. The cable program has opened my eyes to a lot of opportunities because we've been given leadership training and we have been given opportunities to network with other people. We've gone to a couple of conferences where we have opportunities to learn more about the bioeconomy and the different aspects of the bioeconomy. And we've been able to do some research and um, put together a research paper for the cable program to present at one of the conferences. Yeah. And so, what was your paper? What was your paper on? So, our paper was uh, my team's paper was on green transportation. So, we focused on biofuels and electric vehicles for this research paper. Yeah. yeah. One other thing I want to say about Alicia that I think is uh, uh, certainly noteworthy, and that is that she's been in the uh, North Dakota National Guard for six years and uh, is now returning to college to uh, work on her undergrad. So very excited and very proud of you for your service. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and now, uh, Dr. Ripplinger, um, Tell a little bit about yourself. I, I've got some notes here. Uh, looks like you're from North Dakota. Yep, born and raised uh, just down the road from Licious uh, hometown uh, of Devil's Lake. Uh, did my undergrad at NDSU, went to Iowa State for some grad school, finished up at NDSU, uh, and have been uh, a scientist and, and a faculty member now for almost a decade, um, time flies. Uh, my position's really unique, so I have a majority extension appointment. So North Dakota still has a traditional county-based face-to-face extension system, which is becoming more and more rare. Uh, and, and my position is without uh, counterpart anywhere in the country, really. Uh, my job was created 15 years ago uh, during the, the ramp up of 
the corn ethanol uh, industry, uh, the RFS passed. There was actually a lot of activity here in the state of North Dakota in terms of uh, building new corn ethanol refineries and also expectations of cellulosic and other advanced biofuels. And so my position was actually created by the state legislature to work with industry and farmers uh, to make sure that it was successful. And, you know, it's actually been a unique experience uh, for the early part of my time in this position. Spent a lot of time not doing corn ethanol uh, because the industry was built in the state and, and operating, uh, you know, pretty strongly, you know, doing well. Uh, worked on other advanced biofuels, different feedstocks, uh, working on project development. And then more recently, especially in the last two years, have really come back around to corn ethanol because it is so critical to, to the U.S. Uh, agricultural economy and some of the challenges it's facing, both in terms of uh, domestic use, building out uh, domestic markets, uh, E15 and the like, and then also export markets. So I've done some, some market development abroad, uh, working with a variety of groups, uh, and then also uh, looking here as well, just seeing, you know, how can we uh, grow the market for, for ethanol beyond its, you know, its place as, as part of the fuel blend, which is, which is great. Uh, but, you know, you always, you always want to make sure that you have a, a home and, and especially, or even better, a growing home. Yeah. Um, so one other thing I just want to pull in, can you tell about your year as an ag fellow for the office of Senator Grassley? It yeah, seems like so a this, really interesting experience. It, you know what? So I was, uh, when I was getting my master's at Iowa state, uh, I got an offer from, it went through Iowa state, but it was actually the Iowa corn growers, uh, wanted to, uh, wanted to do something unique. Um, and, and they had thought about sending an intern to Washington, but you know, interns in Washington get coffee, um, <laughs> which is helpful. Uh, you need to be caffeinated, but it really wasn't as engaged as they'd like. So they actually created a, a short-term position and I was the, the first person to have it where they worked through Iowa State to pick someone to spend some time in Washington uh, on a congressional staff. You know, I was given the option uh, between uh, Senator Harkin and Senator Grassley. I'm actually kind of apolitical, or at least was, was even more so at that time, and kind of just flipped a coin, uh, ended up working with, with uh, Chuck Grassley and his staff, uh, you know, it, for, for a bit of time there during my, my uh, master's program. It was a fantastic experience. Uh, it made me realize even more that, you know, politics is important, but it's also not my thing. Um, so I... I enjoyed the experience. Uh, I, I, I think it benefits me on a regular basis now, uh, but it's, it, it, it was definitely not my cup of tea, but I enjoyed it, enjoyed the people, enjoyed the energy, uh, and was, you know, didn't enjoy the humidity in the summer uh, and was happy, happy to get back home when it was over. But it was a great experience, and especially one in, in you know, in my early years, you know, it was, it was, was a great uh, time to, to, to learn a lot, to, to see – uh, that part of uh, agribusiness, which is just critically important. I mean, policy is absolutely fundamental in, in the success and resilience of, of biofuels or agriculture more generally. And to, to see that, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis was, was, a, was a really great thing. Yeah. Well, so back to Alicia, we kind of chose this topic or Alicia, you kind of chose this topic, I think, to, to kind of get our listeners up a little bit on to speed on what's going on with the ethanol industry and in particular as it relates to the uh, 
coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 pandemic that we're experiencing. Everyone's seen the, the collapse in, in uh, prices at the gas pump, but uh, what's been kind of the effect on the ethanol industry through all of that? And, and so, Alicia, with that kind of as uh, background and sort of set the stage, let me hand it off to you and, and why don't you take us through the next step and, and introduce your special guest today? Yes, yeah, so I wanted to learn more and get information out about ethanol industry and the challenges that it's facing, uh, not only in today's day during the pandemic situation, but also the challenges that it has been facing otherwise and challenges that we're going to be facing in the short term and long term in, in terms of the future. And so I have um, Ron Lamberty here uh, with us as the uh, guest who will be answering some of my questions. And he is the Senior Vice President at the American Coalition for Ethanol. And he, um, ha there's a lot more that he does. Uh, and I don't know, if, Ron, if you wanted to talk a little bit about yourself, your background, Sure. Uh, well, most of my um, background has been working in the, the fuel industry. Um, I come from 40 years of running convenience stores and uh, working as a wholesale supplier, worked for a, an oil company running their convenience stores early in my career. Um, so mine has mostly been retail and wholesale, not at the oil company level, but on the distributor level. Um, the guys who have contracts with the oil companies and then supply the mom and pop stores around the country. Those are the people I worked with and actually the person I've been up until about four or five years ago when I sold um, the last of the three stations that I bought over that career. Um, with Ace, I've been uh, starting actually by September of this year. Um, it'll be 20 years that I've been working with Ace. Um, and we are um, a membership organization. We uh, are advocates for ethanol and, and selling more ethanol. Um, I primarily work with station owners that people like that were like what I did for a living for a long time, just explaining to them what they have to do and what they don't have to do and what they don't have to be afraid of, even though they've been told many times, that, you know, they've, they've got to, uh, you know, look out for all kinds of different things, but I primarily work with them. And, and uh, I think, as you know, we spoke earlier talking about doing the math for them, explaining why ethanol can be a good product for them, both from an octane standpoint um, and most of the time from a price standpoint, although we're in weird times right now because of the, the fight between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Um, but um, most of the time it's something where they can use it as an advantage and, and uh, that works to our advantage because it helps us get into new markets. Yeah, great. So um, we, if you don't mind, we'll move on to the questions that I have for you. Sure. Um, and of course, if either Dr. Ripplinger or Denny wants to chime in on something, you're very welcome to. So the first question I have for you is how can the ethanol industry recover from the low oil prices and decreased driving that it's been seeing due to the pandemic situation? 
I think it's going to be difficult for the fuel industry in general to recover, at least not. I don't think there's going to be a quick recovery. Um, I think specifically if we're talking about ethanol, um, our recovery is going to be enhanced by um, if we're able to get a a higher percentage of the fuel sales when the fuel sales come back. um, You know, if we can get E15 or, or more flex fuel sold, so that um, a greater portion of whatever gallons come back um, will be ethanol. Um, that's going to be challenging because we are in a condition right now where because of all the oil that was flooded into the market earlier this year, again, because of the, the, uh, the, the low price, um, uh, you know, the, the, the fight between Saudi Arabia and Russia, there's a lot of oil on the market. Um, uh, in the marketplace, there's a lot of it in storage. Um, and once people start driving, that will be something that they'll see. I mean, right now, I, in, I live in South Dakota. Our prices on the street are still less than $2, kind of in the buck and a half to buck 69 range. And even at those levels, um, you know, station owners are making a pretty good margin right now, but their volume is way down. So one of the advantages that ethanol's always had is that it's helped them get enhanced margins. Well, you know, three or four years ago when they were looking at gaining a penny or two of extra profit uh, versus a 12 or 13 cent profit margin, that's a pretty significant amount. But margins now, I think last week I saw they were averaging somewhere around 40 cents a gallon. So a penny or two, even if we still had that advantage, which right now we don't, um, a penny or two probably isn't going to encourage them to sell a lot more ethanol. So now we've got to talk about other benefits like whether you can sell it as a mid grade and, and uh, whether you can maybe blend a higher percentage to, to do a premium, but there's other factors like that, but those aren't quick fixes. None of, none of those are, we still, we have, we have a lot of extra inventory in the ethanol industry too. So um, I think that the, the things that we'll find out fairly quickly are when it, when people start coming back into the marketplace, Will they drive more because they don't want to take, you know, airline flights or public transportation? You know, will they hop in their own cars and drive more? Will the volume actually go up once everybody's back? Um, and then how quickly will that take over? On the other side of that is how, how many people will keep having meetings like the ones we're having right now, um, where they say, you know, I really don't have to go to that place. I can have a, a you know, a meeting on, on my computer, or my phone, um, and you know, how many people will be working from home permanently now after they find out that, you know, maybe it wasn't as difficult or distracting as they thought it was. And I don't know if you keep hearing the little yippy dog in my background, but you know, things like that, that make it a little bit, um, irritating or challenging, but so all of those things will remain to be seen. Um, but, um, you know, in general, uh, we've seen drops in, fuel volume at stations as far as you know retail stations most of them 50 to 60 percent some of them you know in more rural areas 85 to 90 percent um so you know depends on how long that lasts and how quickly it comes back but um when it does come back we got to be ready to you know put more hopefully encourage people to put more ethanol in their fuel and then beyond that beyond domestic then to see what we can what we can export in in uh, countries all over the world so it's um it's it's going to be a challenge but uh uh, one of the things that won't you know won't be likely to happen is that 
you know, when people talk about a bounce back, people aren't going to go back and remake trips that they didn't make um, for the most part. And from March till whenever we come out of this thing, there's really no way to go back and redo those, um, you know, so that won't be something where we'll have like this, you know, bump up in, in mileage or people driving uh, that, you will make up for all the time we've been down. Um, so it's going to be, you know, we want normal volume to be restored as quickly as possible and then try to do what we can to make sure that ethanol is a higher percentage of that volume. So do you think now is kind of the time to be pushing the higher percentage blends and uh, trying to get that to be, be more consumer preferred, things like that? You know, it, it, it's a strange thing with the oil industry, with the, the fuels industry, with convenience store industry is um, it, it's, it's a tough product to sell to consumers. Um, even, you know, you take the largest oil companies in the world, you know, ExxonMobil, typically one of the largest companies in the world volume wise. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think they've ever been in the top 100 in advertising. So it's not, it's not something that consumers usually get a lot of information about or are encouraged to buy in any way other than seeing it at the pump, seeing it promoted at the station and you know, most of the time with a price. Um, but brands promote themselves. Um, and then as a station owner, you put a brand up and you get to accept that credit card. They've got some kind of national image that, uh, that you benefit from in most cases. Um, but if, by and large, people don't want to study very much about what they put in their car. They want it. They want to know they can use it. They want to know it's it's legal that it won't hurt their car, and then they want to see the price. Um, people mostly shop price on fuel. So, what we've got to do from a consumer standpoint is make sure that they understand that a fuel like E15, um, which is basically an 88 octane unleaded gasoline that they can use it in their car as long as it's a 2001 or newer vehicle. Um, and that it's that the EPA has approved it for that for most cars that have a warranty still on their vehicle, keeping in mind that warranties are usually three or four years, some are five, but most cars that have a warranty right now are warrantied for E15. So, you know, it's just a matter of making sure that people are comfortable with it at the pump and, and because of that we typically work just with the retailers themselves to make sure that they've got point of sale signage uh, if they need a brochure that explains what their fuel is um, they've got that because they're really the ones who if people are looking for any information at all they typically get it from the station not from a you know a national ad campaign or um, you know or, or some you know, big push that you get from, from advertising or promoting it to consumers. And, and it's, it's also an odd sell because it's, it's one of these things you kind of have to do as a, you, you know, you, you got to decide, do you want to do this as a, this is good for us. Um, and ethanol's always kind of been put in a position where we're, we're saying it's not bad and that's terrible. I mean, it's, it's tough for marketing. I mean, it's just, you know, because once you say we're not bad, they, people say, oh, well, were you bad before? Or, you know, so it's, it's um, you know, a lot of times by, by giving the right name at the pump 
and by the fuel being priced the way it's priced, um, that sells it. And then once people try it, they keep using it as we found pretty much in every market. Once, once an ethanol blend gets in there, whether it's E10 or when people start using E85, once they start using it, they keep using it because none of the scary stories they've heard come true. So do you uh, think that with the low oil prices that oil companies are going to be more resistant to using higher blends in general or pushing higher blends with ethanol? Um, yeah, I mean, they, they've been more aggressive during this pandemic about things like the renewable fuel standard and, and um, you know, different different regulations that are out there that require a certain amount of biofuels. Um, they're going to aggressively press back against them, citing those as their problems when, in fact, their problem is based on oil supply um, and oil prices. It's not because there's ethanol in the fuel or, um, you know, there's... The, the percentage of ethanol in their fuel uh, is the same today, or is the requirement for it is the same as it was at the beginning of the year and, and will be at the end of the year. There's no extra volume that has to be made up because um, when, when the renewable fuel standard comes out, it's a solid number, but it's converted to a percentage. And so that, you know, that's, it was done basically for ease of management by the oil companies, but what it has the effect of doing is if the market goes crazy and volume goes way up, then the ethanol volume goes up with it. If the volume takes a dive like it did this year, the ethanol volume goes down along with it. So, um, you know, they, there really isn't any reason for them to, you know, get the relief that they're looking from because it's not going to change anything. Plus the, you know, the fact that they're asking for something uh, based on the idea that it's damaging to the economy as a whole would probably not be agreed upon by most motorists. Um, you know, they probably look at it and say, well, you know, we're kind of okay with this sub $2 gasoline prices. So, um, you know, it, 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 I don't know that any of those will go anywhere, but the oil companies will, you know, it's, it's a market share argument. It's um, uh, disguised as other things, but it's basically, you know, ethanol's, legally or you know biofuels are are legally required in 10 or it's like 11 11 and a half percent this year of your fuel um if you're a refiner or an importer and they'd rather not have to do that um unless you know i mean if the economics were perfect for them and there was a way that they could put 20 percent in and and be able to sell the rest of the volume that they're refining then they might be more in favor of it but the fact that it's required is is not something that they that they like. So, um, and it, you know, it, it's right now. Um, I took a look at some some numbers. I think of the past almost ten and a half years. There's only been twelve months where the price of ethanol averaged higher than gasoline. Um, the rest of the time, ethanol's been lower, and the average over that period of time has been forty some cents. So, it's always been an advantage to blend. And yet there's a requirement because, you know, if you make the other stuff, why would you put, why would you put ethanol in it? So, um, you know, I, I, I think they probably, so, I mean, I guess to answer your question, I think they'll push back more than they have in the past, more because they have a price advantage at this particular moment. Um, but it's still more a question of um, not being required to buy ethanol if they don't want to. Right now they, you know, they make an 84 octane base fuel, 
that has to have something in it to bring it up to 87 so you can use it in cars. Uh, it's either going to be a premium gasoline or some aromatic additive. But if you add 10% ethanol, that brings it up to 87. That's still the cheapest way to get it up to an 87 octane gasoline. So there's that reason that ethanol hasn't dropped as far as gas has because there's the octane advantage. Um, but we'll see as the price of oil starts to recover, um, whether ethanol will go along with it or if there will be a little bit of a you know, stagnant following of it, if it'll, you know, wait for a while and um, we'll, you know, we'll see how that goes. Referring back to the RFS and uh, CAFE standards, fuel emission standards and things like that. And I know that the um, government most recently, especially with the current situation, the pandemic and whatnot, that they've been really um, like cutting off those 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 policies, saying we don't need this standard, we don't need this standard right now. And so, my next question is that: what kind of policy should or could be implemented to support the ethanol industry? You, you know, short term, there are things that probably need to be done for ethanol producers that haven't, that, you know, have been done for other industries and, and ethanol really hasn't gotten a piece of those. Um, maybe some kind of reimbursement for corn they've already purchased or, or, um, you know, there, there's a, there's, there's a bill that um, addresses some of those things that, um, you know, hopefully it'll make it through, but, you know, the same kind of cash infusion that has happened with a lot of the other industries out there. Um, you know, with ethanol touching so many of them, I think we're finding out about, you know, did, did, I guess we've we've known, but I think there's a, it's been a good illustration for some folks of how many different industries we help with the, you know, the distiller's grain going to feed animals. Um, and when an ethanol plant is shut down or, or even running slower than their feed availability isn't as big as it was before, um, CO2 even, I mean, there's people that... Uh, we're very concerned, very, very concerned about the fact that that CO2 is used in beer and we wouldn't want to cut off anybody's beer supply during the pandemic for, you know, that, that would be a tragedy to a lot of folks. So, um, but, you know, ethanol in general has, is, you know, they've done some things with uh, uh, sanitizer, whether it's hand sanitizer or surface sanitizer that have been helpful. Um, there's been some clunkiness in the way the, the regulations have been um, rolled out on that, um, you know, making it more difficult for some plants uh, where they went ahead because of uh, guidance they got in the middle of uh, April um, that they went ahead and made some changes in their facilities and then that advice changed by the end of the month. Um, but those things have been, have been um, helpful in some respects. But I think there's just, you know, some kind of fund infusion that's needed in the short term. In the longer term, we're looking at things like a, uh, you know, we're, we've been working for a couple of years on a Midwest low carbon octane standard um, where ethanol is, is um, ethanol use is incentivized by its octane and by its low carbon and uh, plants are then incentivized to, um, you know, make ethanol more cleanly, more efficiently so that their carbon score goes down. We're already seeing that as something that moves a lot of volume in California. Um, E85 is 
moving like crazy in California because the, the, the carbon credits that they get for them are, are very valuable and, and retailers and wholesalers in particular um, know how to monetize those and, and use them to drive more fuel purchases. Um, so that as a national standard, um, if nothing else, it kind of answers a lot of the questions, some of the negativity over ethanol over the years is based on the idea that, you know, they're using numbers as far as cleanliness goes or, or you know, uh, uh, environmentally friend, environmental friendliness uh, based on, you know, the oldest and least efficient plants out there. You've got plants out there now that are doing, you know, heat capture. They're doing, uh, you know, different um, uh, energy feedstocks. You got some that have, that have windmills. You got some that are, um, you know, doing um, uh, some cellulosic ethanol that drives their their um, carbon scores down. So you've got a lot cleaner industry now than it was even five years ago and, and, and way cleaner than it was 10 years ago. So if nothing else, it gives us an opportunity to, you know, all the, the critics that, you know, keep saying is kind of repeating um, incorrect information that ethanol isn't a cleaner fuel than gasoline and, and those sorts of things. we got a, a chance to answer those. And then, you know, to be rewarded for the things that ethanol does well, which is add octane and, and oxygenate and, and, um, and be a, a lower carbon fuel in, in its creation. So, um, we've been working with some folks on that, like I said, for a couple of years, and it's a diverse group. It's not just biofuels producers. There's, there's, uh, electric utilities there. We've got environmental groups involved in it, um, to talk about things that they like and don't like about it and, and steer the policy. Um, and we think that's probably the way we're going to need to go in the future. Um, if ethanol is going to be a, a, you know, get its, its real value to the, uh, to the, you know, to the fuel supply and to the to vehicle power. Well, and just a question on that, Ron. Um, so like a state level compact, you know, in the Midwest, I mean, which states are, are most, likely to move first on that i would i i haven't been as directly involved in that but i would guess minnesota i mean minnesota's the, the, been the first one to move on a lot of the ethanol um a lot of the ethanol policy they were the first state to mandate ethanol they were the first to mandate um uh soy or biodiesel um and i think that would they would be one of the ones to move the the fastest but you know we got states pretty much you know north and south dakota Nebraska, uh, Colorado, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois. I mean, they, I think Missouri and Kansas too have been involved in sort of a discussion about a Midwest clean fuel standard. And my guess is if something moves forward, the first place it'll move forward is going to be in probably Minnesota. Um, just by the you know progressive nature of their fuel history. So um, that, that, would, that would be my guess. Thanks. Mm -hmm. So I'm understanding that we're having difficulties with getting, uh, obviously the ethanol market is limited right now with the decrease, decrease to driving, but a lot of our money comes from exports. Um, but looking at how highly tariffed the exports are and things like that. Um, so what, are some impacts to the industry 
and the environment if we increase or if we're able to increase exports to, say, China and Brazil, since they are, um, I believe, second and third or third and fourth place for ethanol um, production right now. But we are number one, so we we would be able to export to them. Yeah, I, yeah, I think um, one of the things that happened over the first um, couple years of the current administration's EPA, we had some issues with uh, small refinery exemptions and different things that um, reduced the amount used in the United States. And yet we didn't feel a lot of pain from it to start out with because exports were picking up pretty dramatically. Um, places like Brazil, as you mentioned, um, uh, China buying some, not nearly what they could, um, but, you know, in different in other different countries around the world that are that are using ethanol. And then at the same time, you've got some of the places where they put lids on it originally, um, where they're thinking of then removing that cap uh, places, you know, like in Europe where they had a original plan that was going to be higher and then it went lower. And now it seems like it might be higher again. Canada is is getting pretty aggressive and that's a great market for us. Um, you know, I've been to Mexico, I think 13 times in the last year and a half. And although nothing's moved, very little has moved yet. I think we probably will see that as a big market eventually. Um, but basically what we saw in those first couple of years was that the uh, small refinery exemptions and some of the domestic policies that, that would have hurt us otherwise didn't because we had, good exports. And then those exports were reduced or taken away because of trade disputes um, with, with various countries. I mean, in, in China in particular is one where I remember the first one, the first time I started tracking um, how many cars there were in China, how many vehicles, I guess you kind of sometimes hard to call them cars, but I mean, they're passenger vehicles. Um, and, and I remember at one point we were at you know, 225 million vehicles and they were at 60 something. And that was only like, I mean, I think it was, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. And then as of last year, I think they were over 300 million. We're at 250 something. So they're, the people are buying and driving vehicles like crazy. And I mean, environmentally speaking, getting any ethanol into that market is going to be a huge benefit um, because there's just, I mean, they, their air quality is just, awful. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't know that it would have a huge effect on ours. Um, Brazil, you know, has been using ethanol for a long time in a lot higher percentages than we do, um, or China does, but that's, a, you know, that's more of an economic market um, place that we can, you know, make some money selling fuel to them because, you know, sugar is still more valuable as sugar than it is as fuel. So um, there's times when they would much rather sell their sugar in to sugar customers and they would make it into fuel to sell for ethanol. But I think, you know, Europe, it'd be nice if that market comes around, if Mexico does, if Canada continues to expand, all of those are things that make it more economical for an ethanol producer to, to continue making uh, more volume. And if they make more volume, then they buy more corn. And if they buy more corn, then those prices restore quicker. Um, and, you know, those, those uh, farmers who are getting beaten up by this, uh, uh, pandemic too will um, recover and it'll be the market paying them back um, as opposed to, you know, having to control something and do some kind of program. So I mean, the exports, you know, the, the export market is um, something that if our industry is going to grow beyond where it is right now, that's going to have to expand. 
Um, so, I mean, I mean, it's got an important part of the recovery, obviously, and, and an even more important part of the future of the industry. Dave, I observed a webinar that you conducted not too long ago, and you were showing the impact the ethanol industry had on corn prices. And um, uh, so, obviously, it's, it's kind of nice to see potential growth of the ethanol industry. What's the impact that would have on corn prices and the corn market? Yeah, well, it, it's substantial. I mean, it, they're... Uh the, the the U.S. corn ethanol and the, the the corn ethanol refining industries in this country are joined at the hip, and uh, with a third of our corn, on average, being used to produce ethanol, you know it, it's a it's a major destination, major use, and so I know uh, on the corn side here in North Dakota and elsewhere uh, that you know finding good markets, solid markets, growing markets for corn is what a lot of folks are about, and. You know, that's what the, the corn ethanol industry has, has done. And so, you know, both, you know, for the last 15 years, that's been the case. And, 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 and every day that that relationship one way or another is proven. And right now, the, 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 the corn industry, you know, especially in, in our neck of the woods, is, is looking for, you know, economic recovery, uh, more uh, vehicle miles being driven, more gasoline being used, uh, hopefully a build out uh, of the E15 market and exports. And, you know, it, it certainly does go back, you know, not only in terms of use, but, you know, at every every bushel that goes into ethanol, you know, that that is, an, you know, there's an increase in demand for that. And it, and it has a major impact on the, the prices that all corn farmers receive, uh, their net revenues. And actually for most farmers, what they receive, because we have, you know, 30 million acres essentially uh, of U.S. cropland that's used to produce corn for, for corn ethanol. And so it's kind of that rising tide lifts all boats. And that's, that's certainly the case with, with corn ethanol, corn, and then all of agriculture. Uh, and so I've actually been, you know, we're, we're, I, we're coming off what was a bottom a few weeks ago in the corn ethanol market. So I'm really optimistic uh, based on where we were. Uh, that, you know, the summer won't be as bad as it could have been. And we're seeing continued use. Uh, you know, Memorial Day is coming up and, you know, the summer driving season is here. And so I, I do expect people to drive. But we'll, we won't be back to full capacity. We won't be back to driving like we were uh, for quite some time, if ever. Uh, but again, that, that continued growth is, is to me, is good news and I always, you know, thinking of having that, that perspective of a, of a corn farmer, having that hat on, you know, we've increased uh, production, you know, corn ethanol production substantially in the last three weeks. And, you know, every time a plant comes online or increases production, you know, that's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and eventually millions of acres of corn that gets used. And so, you know, coming off that low where we were running at, you know, half capacity roughly, now to where we're running... Uh, you know, at two thirds capacity, it's a substantial amount of, of corn that's, you know, being put to good use, uh, which is good news. And then hopefully that continues now, now as folks are starting to drive with the economy opening up and it being driving season. Ron, I think it's interesting. You were talking about the CO2 and the, the beer industry. I, my guess is very few listeners to this podcast, uh, connect ethanol plants to the wide variety of products that actually come from an ethanol refinery, you know, and um, I've, I've heard CO2 also is used to, 
help with the meat industry in terms of uh, uh, preparing the cattle for, for slaughter or the livestock for slaughter. Um, but there's a whole bunch of products that come out of an ethanol plant. Do you want to just address some of those? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the things when we first ran into the food versus fuel argument, it was a situation where we had not done a very good job as an industry explaining what we do with corn when we get it in, because the idea was you send corn to an ethanol plant, it all gets used up and it turns into into fuel for your car. And then people don't have anything to eat when the fact is it it divides out about a third, a third and a third, a third, a third fuel, a third CO2 and a third of, of feed of some sort. Then beyond that feed number, now there there's plants that are going into a high protein, um, a, a high protein feed, um, food grade type um, feed that comes out of there. Uh, corn oil was one of the big um, extracting the corn oil, the fat from that that um, uh, distiller's grain, um, and using the corn oil both for things like biodiesel, um, but you know anything that you that you would use. You know they call it corn crude. Um, that after the twenty the two thousand eight um, recession and and the, the you know the tough times that people had there, corn oil was one of the things that got people back on their feet. Um, part of the part of the uh, plant is also now being used so that uh, a lot more plants have some cellulosic ethanol. Um, where where they make you know use more of it, and that gets their oil production up. That also gets their gallons per bushel up um, and then you've got on the co2 side there's even if you're in the right place for it there's even some of that that ironically is used um, to uh, inject into wells to get more oil out of them so it's it's um, there's all kinds of different things that the co2 is used for um, and I think there's um, a refrigeration is probably something that's a, a big use of it but um, you know, it's a, it, people don't people don't notice things until it's something that they're paying attention to. And, you know, the coronavirus became real because NBA players got it on TV, you know. And, and uh, if um, CO2 gets, if, if an ethanol plant gets recognized for being, you know, selling a clean fuel because we make hand sanitizers and surface sanitizers, that's something we need to make sure that we share with people. Um, and if we're, you know, if people are more supportive of ethanol because they're worried that they won't have fizz in their beer. That's fine too. They, you know, they support it for whatever reason they want, but uh, yeah, it's, I think it's, you know, with any industry, you start out with whatever product you have and then you, you know, the meat packing industry where it started out just being meat and then it was meat and leather and sports equipment and all those other kind of things that they got out of it. And we're doing the same thing in the ethanol industry. You learn what you can do with the pieces and parts and to start out with, it was just make ethanol and give away that distiller's grain. Let's get rid of that so we can make more ethanol. But now that that makes those plants a lot more economically viable um, at times when, you know, I, I'm guessing that those that are running are probably doing a little better with their um, distiller's grain than they were before this thing happened. And one of the things that I would point out, too, when we talk about volume, there was a big bump up in volume before the big pandemic, uh, you know, the shutdown. So there are people that were, I don't know, filling their cars, filling whatever it was that they had, thinking that everything would be shut down. So there was a little bit of bump up that, you know, our, our average over the year will probably be better than maybe we think. Um, and in places where they've, uh, I mean, I've, every article I've read the last week or so has talked about the volume coming back pretty quickly in places where they're allowed to drive. So 
Um, but yeah, all these other products are things that um, I think plants have been, the plants that have been open have been trying, have been doing so because they sell these other products. So I have one other quick question. Um, sure. So, you know, the Heroes Act did include that 45 cent uh, per gallon support for, for, for biofuel produced or a leg for 2019. Do you think that has traction in the Senate? Um, I, you know, I, I only know based on what I'm reading, I think, um, the, the, uh, uh our executive director is the, the, our CEO, I guess, is the guy who, who deals with that daily. Um, and I, you know, I think there's hope that something will get through there. Um, but it's, you know, I'm, like everything else that has been in the past several years, it's, um, you know, there's, there's, um, uh, you know, somebody's making a political point out of, out of whatever it is that's in there. So you never know what's going to change by the end. Uh, I would hope it's something is in there because, you know, it is an important industry and in, in an area that's important to a few of the politicians that are running for office this year. Um, and so maybe they'll see that this industry has been, you know, been skipped over largely and, um, and help us, you know, take care of it. Um, but it's, you know, the, the administration has been very supportive of the oil industry, um, less supportive, less supportive of ethanol, um, you know, gotten a few things that were, were, you know, announced well and, 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 uh, you know, touted, but, you know, as far as actual policies that have put money in ethanol producers pockets, there've been fewer of, of those things. So, um, hopefully this will be one of the times that we get something that, um, actually, you know, helps the bottom line of the plants um, because most of the plants that we represent are farmer owned and, and locally owned. So, you know, you've got people who are, you know, invested in it as a hedge against low corn prices and a hedge against high fuel prices. And, um, you know, this, this uh, particular situation right now is certain them on both of those sides, both of those ends, which is unusual. And then just another question unrelated, uh, the high, the higher blend infrastructure investment uh, program, you know, USDA kind of announced right. last week, you know, ACE, are you guys doing a lot with that? Is something, is that something you guys kind of deal with yourselves or, and that's kind of a yes or no. And then, you know, how do you see that impacting the market? How do you see that being rolled out? Do you think that they'll have enough folks subscribe to use up to hundred million dollars? Well, it, you know, sort of the things that I mentioned to start out with from a retail standpoint, I don't know how many people will jump right on it. Um, simple answer. First of all, yes, we are involved in it. We've got some, you know, we've got a website, we've got funds that we've set aside to help retailers. We, again, focus mostly on the, the small retailer, the uh, individual mom and pop stores. That's about 60% of the stations out there are owned by a single, you know, are owned by someone who owns just one station. Um, but they also are the ones that you, if you can get somebody in a market that handles this new product, they can get the attention of other people because usually they'll have a competitive advantage and, and the others will come around saying, you know, where'd this come from? How can I get in on it? Um, this program, that program should be helpful. Um, it basically will pay 50% uh, of the cost of any upgrades you need to sell um, uh, E15 or any, any blend above 10%. Now, for the most part, what we hope Will, will happen with stations is that they'll check to see if what they already have is compatible with E15 because most of them are. And so it would cost a lot less to sell E15 than they think it will. Um, but if they do need some funds, they can get them through this program. And it is getting the attention of some of these um, stations um, 
and then we're trying to help them with the, you know, with the equipment assessments, with the, um, uh, you know, making sure that they have the, um, that they, that they know that there are funds available if they, um, you know, if they want to do some upgrades or put in new equipment. Um, but I don't know how quickly it'll have any effect on anyone. Um, because number one, the, the application, um, period is from last Friday and it ends on April, on August 12th and there won't be any awards made until mid September. And you can't do any of the work until the award has been made and there's a contract. So I don't think it'll have any, you know, quick effect unless it's people who check to see if they're compatible, find out they already are and jump on it. That's what we're trying to, you know, make sure that we're pushing people checking it right now, go check to see if you're compatible. Maybe you won't need anything and then you can beat these other guys to the market. Um, so that's the approach that, that we'll be taking on it or have been taking on it. Um, and it, for the most part, what our role is, is we've got to be a bit of a, like a translator, a simplifier, um, because if you're a single store owner, you're probably working in the station um, and, and they don't want to change anything unless they have to, or unless they see it as a big advantage. And so our part will be, you know, if you want to have your station inspected, we'll send somebody in there to do it. And then they can give you a list of here's the equipment you need. If you want to do E15, once they find out all they need is maybe new hoses and nozzles, they'll say, Oh, well then maybe I'll do that. So that could have some effect. This will be the second summer when people can sell E15 without worrying about the waiver that the, that, um, uh, the, the RVP waiver that wasn't there the year before or two years ago. So there should be some volume there. Um, but the, 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 the long-term the Ohio uh, higher blends infrastructure and incentive partnership, I believe, or program is what that's called HBIP. Um, I think any volume effect that it'll have will be late at, you know, end of the year and, and most of next year. Thanks. Is there any other challenges or anything else that you would like to address as part of this learning experience for other people to know? You know, I think it's probably a lot longer discussion, but I think one of the things that we hope comes out of things like the low carbon octane standard and, and some of the things here is that somewhere along the lines, ethanol got turned into a fuel that's just like gas um, and that it, it's not cleaner and that there are, um, you know, more energy used. It's a few, there, there's a lot of charges that have been leveled against us. And I think probably because the ethanol was selling anyway, maybe we didn't do a good enough job of of uh, informing people that those charges are incorrect. Um, and I think, you know, where we are right now, if people come out of this with more concern about health, more concern about air quality, because they've seen a change when cars weren't on the road, um, you, know, they, you know, things like food and, and, and feed and that sort of thing. I think we have an opportunity here to, to restore, you know, ethanol's status as a, an environmentally friendly fuel and um, I, we have to take advantage of that because that's, like, you know, long term, um, it's going to be biofuels or electric or some combination of those. Um, and um, we need to we need to do a good job of making sure people understand the the actual benefits of, of, of ethanol on a lot of different areas. Yeah, I can definitely agree. Educating the general public and continuing to do things like 
running programs such as the cable program uh, are very beneficial for the environment, not only the ethanol industry, but yeah, also the environment. And mm -hmm. so thank you so much for all the information that you've given us today. You've answered the questions very thoroughly and I really appreciate it. And so I think I'm just going to hand it off to Denny to close it out. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Alicia, for organizing this topic and, and pulling together our panel today and uh, for, for serving as uh, our guest host of BioBase Radio. Um, Ron, great having you as a guest. And, and Dave, I always appreciate your participation in, in these bioeconomy topics. Uh, very thoughtful and, and uh, knowledgeable in the area. And I always learn a lot when we're talking with you. So uh, to all of you, to all my guests, and then to all of the listeners out there, stay tuned for more episodes of uh, BioBased Radio as we continue to explore possibilities uh, from American agriculture and and the, uh, the, the bioeconomy industry. So Alicia, thank you. Ron, Dave, good seeing you. Talk to you all again soon. Thanks so much. Bio-Based Radio is a production of the Bioproducts Innovation Center at The Ohio State University, produced in association with the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Bio-Based Radio is hosted by Denny Hall and produced and edited by Casey Needham and Brad Collins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, plant a seed with a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts.